I love this battle because it is wide open. Mm. You know, the more you kind of read on this, the more you realise everyone has a different take on it. Some of the accounts don't add up and you can walk away from it. Like you could read up about it and come away from it with a completely different take on it to what I have. And that's why I like it. Welcome to The Irish at War, a podcast about Irish military history. I'm your host, David Cummins. I want to say thank you so much to everybody that's after tuning in over the last number of weeks. That's absolutely brilliant. It's been so good, in fact, that the Irish at War podcast has jumped to number 12 in the Irish iTunes podcast charts in the education section but still I'm pretty happy with that so thank you so much and randomly uh, it jumped like to number 12 in Norway as well so that's incredible thank you to whoever is listening to me in Norway or as you say up there I don't know if that makes sense that's what Google Translate says uh, is thank you all but thank you all anyway um, but seriously thank you all so much for listening to this this is absolutely incredible it means the world to me that you guys and girls are just really enjoying what I'm putting out. If you want the day-to-day stuff as well, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Ireland Battles. And if you really are feeling generous, you can become a patron of the Irish at War on Patreon. If you just Google the Irish at War patron, you'll find us. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And for as little as three euro a month, you know, the, the price of a cup of tea or a coffee somewhere, you can get much more in-depth posts about everything that I post on Twitter. They are much longer, they're in more detail, as well as I have accessible links to sites and books um, and other places where you can find and do a bit more research on something that might have tickled your fancy. So if you think that that's your cup of tea, please donate three euro. It would make the world to me. I said a couple of weeks ago that I lost my job. So I would be most grateful if you are to be able to donate that three euro. But enough about all that. Today I'm talking with Abby McGowan from the Ockram Centre. And we're going to be talking about Ireland's bloodiest battle, the Battle of Ockram from 1691. We're going to be talking about who was there, what happened, why did it take place at that site and not somewhere else. We're going to be talking about Patrick Sarsfield and his role in this. And we're going to be talking about the aftermath of the battle and the war, the Treaty of Limerick, and why the Battle of Ockram as Ireland's bloodiest battle isn't as popular as the Battle of the Boyne. So, let's get it started. Okay, so Abby, introduce yourself and what you do and talk about the Ockram Centre as well, please. Yeah, sure. So my name is Abby. Um, I studied history and archaeology in NUIG. I focused mainly on the early modern period um, and I loved the Tudors until I started reading more about the Stuarts. I 
was lucky enough to work at the visitor centre in Auckland for two summers in 2015 and 2016. So I suppose like most people, I had heard of Auckland. I knew there was a visitor centre there, but I'd never visited. So the centre was created by um, a man called Martin Joyce. So he was a local um, school teacher and he had collected a lot of um, artefacts and information about the battle. He was very, very passionate about it. And he was keeping a lot of the stuff in the national school, but he felt that it needed a um, proper home. So he encouraged uh, the building of the visitor centre. So it was built as a joint venture with, I think, the Western Tourism Board, Fulcher Island. And that all fell away, and now it's in the hands of the county council. So while I was working there, I met people who were very interested in the battle and had a huge amount of knowledge. Um, there were volunteers, really, that would come in and just kind of while away the time, if you like. So Michael and George in particular were always very willing to give me information and share what they had. Um, anyone who's been to the visitor centre will know that there's a large room in the back and it has a huge diorama table on it, which kind of shows the layout of the battlefield. Um, that used to be empty. There was nothing on it. But Michael kind of took it upon himself to fill it up with the soldiers that he actually makes by hand. So he would be coming in and out all the time and talking to me, giving me information and stuff like that. So then we decided that the few of us that were really passionate about it, we got together and we formed a group called Ka Akrama, which is Battle of Akram. So we try and work with the centre and with the county council. Um, we're kind of active on social media, Facebook, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. And every year for Heritage Week, we put together um, a series of talks so that started off with maybe 25 people, I'd say, about five years ago when we started doing it. Last year, we had 90. Now, this year, God only knows if it's going ahead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but um, yeah, so next year, we're hoping to build on that. So that would be the kind of how I got involved in Ockram, we'll say, the background there. That's amazing. Um, especially, yeah, because it started just so very locally with uh, Michael Joyce. So the Battle of Ockram is, is probably, if not, it is Ireland's most bloodiest battle. Mm-hmm. But, as we were saying just before we came on, it's very well forgotten about, or at least it doesn't get as much shine as the other battle during the Williamite War, which is mm-hmm. the Battle of the Boyne. Boyne, so, yeah. So give us a background on the, uh, the Williamite War and the lead up to the Battle of Ockham. Sure. So um, this isn't too easy to explain. So I'll try and keep this as short as possible. You don't have to take um, as much time as you want. (laughs) People who are listening to this are interested in history. So, Yeah. So um, in 1688, there was a huge crisis in England. Um, James II had married again and he'd given birth to a son. So you can kind of forget the likes of the scandal with Harry and Meghan. At the minute, this was big news in the 1680s. The reason being that James was a Catholic and now there's a Catholic heir to the throne. So prior to this, the throne would have gone to either of James' daughters, Mary and Anne, who were both Protestant. So James had been appointing Catholics to positions of power since he found himself on the throne. Um, So depending on which view you take, he's either kind of promoting religious tolerance or he's a despot promoting his friends. But either way, the central Protestant power in England um, is worried. 
So a group of nobles wrote to um, Prince William of Orange to come and depose of James. So why William? Well, William is James's son-in-law. He's married to Mary, and he's also James's nephew. So most importantly, he's Protestant, and he's also fighting a war with the Catholic Louis XIV of France. So at this stage, England is sitting on the fence during this war. Um, if Mary inherits the throne, England will lend support to the Dutch against Louis, so everyone wins as far as they're concerned. France will be the lesser power. So the result is that when William lands in England, James doesn't have much of a choice but to flee to France. So he decides that Ireland, um, it's got a strong Catholic base, it's close to England, and it will work as a stronghold to gather support for the fight to regain his crown. So James lands at Kinsale, and the Irish campaign begins. So we have sieges at Derry, we have, of course, the Battle of the Boyne, and then down into Athlone, and the war drags on. And so by 1691, the Jacobites are holed up in Athlone, and the siege begins. The outcome to that is that after around 10 days of being made siege to and becoming one of the most bombarded towns in Ireland, um, the Jacobites lose Athlone and they head west towards Galway. So that kind of sets the stage for Ockram. It's kind of been a hard war. Um, I think there have been famine in Galway in the preceding year. Um, so things are not good. Um, the Jacobites are kind of on the back foot here as well. Right, and yeah, so the, the siege at Athlone Castle, um, sorry, Athlone, and then they finally mm-hmm. break through, the Jacobites removing themselves behind the line, defensive line of the Shannon. Exactly, yeah, they're heading west. But uh, Turconnell, he wants St. Rue, the commander, the French commander of the Jacobite ar- army, he wants them to come back down as far as Limerick. Mm-hmm. But St. Rue has other ideas. Yes, he does. Um, and there are no kind of good choices, really. Um, like, if Ockram hadn't been fought, maybe they would have held out in Limerick, mm-hmm. as the kind of original plan would have been. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the French would have brought support, but I think perhaps that the outcome would have been the same. Um, as for having a battle at Ockram, it probably would have been better to um, withdraw to Limerick. But, I mean, Sanru had just lost Athlone. He's kind of feeling the pinch, and he has to do something. Um, he doesn't want to go back to France with his kind of head hanging in shame. Um, he decides to turn and fight, and that's why the battle happens at Ockram. Um, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that it's a bad call. <laughs> yeah. So then, why does he choose Athlone? Uh, sorry, why does he choose Ockram then as as the battleground? I know that his camp is his his camp. Uh, sorry, his army is camped there. Mm-hmm. Sarsfield has had the Balliniti, the famous Balliniti raid, where he yes. destroys a lot of the Williamite um, supply train and, and artillery train. But why Ockram? Um, well, Ockram on paper is the perfect battlefield. It's the ideal defensive position. Um, If you look at it on the map, you have kind of two opposing hills. So you have uh, Kilcommandon Hill, which is kind of long and low, and that runs kind of north-south from Ockham Village. In front of that hill lies this kind of swathe of bog that's almost impossible to cross. Um, At the north end of the bog is the village of Ockham, which is also surrounded by bog and comprised of the ruins of an old castle. So to the very south of the battlefield then, there's a crossing point on the Tristorn stream. 
that stream would have been quite substantial at the time. It's only a trickle today. Um, but there's an old bridge there, and you can actually see the arches on the bridge that it would have been a lot wider back then. And mm. um, so across that bog then to the east is the opposing hill of Urukri. So between those two hills, there's only one pass, and that's a very narrow causeway. And only two horses can go down that at a time. So the Jacobites occupied the slopes of Kilcomedon. So essentially, you've got an impassable bog. There's mm-hmm. only one way across. And it's so narrow that only two at a time can go along it. And it just happens to be guarded by the ruins of the castle. And you've got an unscalable hill with your enemy perched on top of it. So when the motorway was put through, they actually had the same problem as Ginkle, that the land was too wet to cross. So even today, this is still like quite sort of dense bog. Right. Um, so yeah, it's just the perfect, like I said, on paper, it's perfect. You, you couldn't ask for a better um, defensive position than Ockram. Right, yeah, yeah, because you do read the accounts of the Williamite infantry just wading waist-deep waist across this bog, just getting picked mm-hmm. off by the um, Jacobite army. And speaking of the armies, we mentioned that it was already the bloodiest battle, but let's, you know, give me an idea of the sheer size of them. How many are there? How many men are on each side? You know, what are their, uh, is it just infantry, cavalry, artillery? What's going on? So, um... The kind of numbers are a bit, uh, there's a bit of controversy on that. I think size-wise, they're pretty evenly matched. There's around 20,000 on each side. There's a slight advantage to the Williamites. You could probably knock off maybe two or 3,000 off that figure, and you still wouldn't be too far wrong. Um, Both armies are equipped with the kind of heavy woolen uniforms of the day. They both have flint and matchlock muskets. Uh, They have grenades, plug bayonets, swords and pikes. Um, in terms of artillery, the Jacobites have nine artillery pieces, the biggest of which would have been maybe a six-pounder. Mm. The Williamites have around 30 artillery pieces, so they're packing a lot more firepower, and the biggest of which are 12-pounder guns. So they're kind of equally equipped, equally drilled. This is the kind of middle of the campaign. Everyone's used to fighting at this point. Um, the kind of striking thing, I suppose, with both armies is the nationalities involved. So the Jacobites would consist of English, um, Irish, with some French officers. The Williamites would consist of English, Dutch, Scottish, French Huguenots, Danes, Germans. Um, The language barrier just has to have been an issue here. Um, William had done a clever thing, and he'd sent much of the British army away to mainland Europe to fight his wars there, while keeping his own guys occupied in Ireland. Um, Religion-wise as well, because obviously that plays a huge part in this war. Yeah. Um, the Jacobites were mostly Catholics, um, but there were kind of some exceptions to this. The Duke of Wartenberg, he was Ginkle's right-hand man, and he was a Catholic. So, you know, it wasn't kind of set strictly along the yeah. religious divide. Yeah, yeah. Um, another thing to kind of take from it as well is, like I said to you there about the kind of the woolen uniforms and stuff like that. So both sides would have been wearing similar colours. Mm. and they were really only distinguished by the colour of the cockade in their hats. So the Williamites had um, a bit of green and the Jacobites had white. But, I mean, even if you actually go into the visitor centre as well and when you see the table laid out, um, the flags and the uniforms on them, it's impossible sometimes to pick out who is a Williamite and who is a Jacobite, you know, never mind kind of in the heat of battle. So I suppose that kind of gives you an idea of what the armies looked like and uh, the size of them. 
And I suppose, aren't both of them wearing red? So they're both red coats? Yeah, so you would have had red, uh, you would have had white, some are wearing blue, green. There's a real mix here. There's no kind of right. uniform, if you like. Each then, regiment had its own thing. And then within the, the fog of war, I suppose it gets quite mm. difficult to pick out who's who, apart from the fact that they're parallel lined up against each other. But Exactly, yeah. And you mentioned about their, their flintlock and matchlock rifles. Mm-hmm. Isn't it the Williamites that have the more modern flintlock and the um, Jacobites have the more older matchlock? Old-fashioned uh, matchlock. Um, yeah, the French had sent supplies to the Jacobites and I'm, I think that flintlocks were included with that. So mm. there would have been a mix, if you like, on both sides. Okay, okay. I was, uh, I was listening to uh, Padraig Lenehan and he was saying that... Oh, yeah. I think there was something like... There was over 20 steps in loading a matchlock musket. Yes. Um, it's a serious <laughs> thing to be able to rattle that off yeah. and get off your two or three shots a minute with one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, while bullets are flying at you as exactly. well and everyone's yeah, dying absolutely. around you. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like for the chance for any one of those stages to go wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, not even that. Even if you do it perfectly right, it can still misfire. Yeah, true. Absolutely. You know, yeah, yeah. so yeah, um, a serious bit of kit. Yeah, and if it rains, well, you're matchlock. Oh, yeah, that's it. Forget it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he was also saying that the Williamites were almost completely, the infantry units were completely armed with firearms, with um, flintlock muskets, whereas the Jacobites were kind of more mixed with pike and matchlock. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that would be right. Um, they also, they both would have had the um, the plug bayonet mm. as well, which meant obviously that they couldn't fire while the bayonet was attached. So you were saying there about all your different steps to unloading it. Um, that's another one as well. Make sure your bayonet isn't on the end of the, the musket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And for those of you who don't know what a plug bayonet is, do you want to explain what a plug bayonet is? Yeah, sure. So um, most people will probably be familiar with the bayonet, um, kind of like a long dagger, if you like, that goes at the end of your your gun. So um, in this time, the bayonet fitted into the barrel of the musket so that you couldn't fire you couldn't fire your musket while the bayonet was attached. And it was actually one of the generals here, I think, uh, Hugh Mackay. He was a William White, a Scottish guy. And I think he actually developed uh, the bayonet that kind of clipped onto the end rather than blocking your barrel. So, hmm. Well, I'm trying to think of uh, the ring bayonet. That's what they call that. Yeah, that's it, the yeah. ring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah and it was the same with the, the, the ramrod as well, quite often. And that's for another couple of hundred years that the ramrod often, if it's not taken out of the musket, that yeah, gets that's going to cause you problems. <laughs> okay, so... Talk to me then. So we've mentioned St. Rude, the Jacobite commander, and then we have Hinkle or Ginkle um, yeah. on the other side. From what I've read, St. Rude is kind of, not arrogant, but he's a typical general in the sense that he thinks he's the best commander in Ireland. And like you said, he's feeling the pinch of having lost, you know, the battle wine at Lone. He's withdrawn and he's going to have to go on the defensive. And so he makes this stand. So, I mean, what are they like as commanders and as, as you know, people, what's their their mind? What's their thought process through all of this? Well, I don't think you're too far wrong there with saying that Saint Rue is um, arrogant. We don't know an awful lot about him. Mm. Um, he's often referred to as Saint Ruth. Yes. He's definitely not a saint. 
Yeah. Um, his <laughs> full name is Charles Charmont, and his title is the Marquis de Saint-Roux. So we know that he was supposed to be one of the ugliest men in Europe, and there is no surviving um, painting of him to kind of disprove this. Um, he was also supposed to be a notorious wife beater. Oh, and the King of France is supposed to have intervened on his wife's behalf a few times and sent him away on sort of long, pointless campaigns to kind of get him out of her hair. Right. So um, he would have arrived in Ireland um, in 1691, slightly after the supplies did. And we know that he spoke only in French, so he had no English. Hmm. Um, and as you say, arrogance seems to be the kind of the trait that kind of comes down. He was supposed to think that he, he knew it all. So on the kind of other end of the spectrum then is Ginkel. So he was Dutch and he had travelled with William to England and then on to Ireland. So he was a career soldier and he had been given his first commission, I think, aged around 12. And he was a very cautious general. So he'd fought at the Boyne and he was left in charge then after William's departure. Um, he was made the Earl of Athlone after Ockram. And there was actually a nightclub um, in Athlone. That, that had his name. So um, he spoke several different languages, which obviously came in handy with this kind of international army that uh, he was leading. Um, but yeah, two sort of very different different men altogether. Very, very different. Um, so I was reading that once William kind of finishes up at the Battle of the Boyne, mm. he heads back onto the mainland Europe Yep, and he's, he's kind of just to Ginkle, just let, let get this wrapped up. Do whatever you mm-hmm. need to do, but just wrap this up because, he, as you mentioned, he's got a much bigger fish to fry on on yep. the uh, on the continent. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, do you want to give me the, the the broader context of the war two kings in Ireland, the Williamite Wars in Ireland, on the European scale? Um, well, the background to it, I suppose, is Louis has kind of come out of the womb sort of looking for a fight, if you like. Mm. Uh, He's been engaged in war sort of all over Europe and he's kind of the central uh, Catholic power. Um, Then you have kind of the sort of Protestant stronghold, if you like, that is the the Dutch Republic. um, And they have been at war also. So um, that's kind of where James comes into play with his um, Catholic heir. Mm. Um. You know, the fact that England will now have um, a Catholic on the throne, potentially, that's a source of serious uh, discontent in Europe. Yeah. Because um, obviously then, England being the huge power that it is, if that sides with France, you know, it'll tip the scales mm-hmm. a wee bit. I can't remember who it was, but, um, but it might be a mile off on this, but was it the Pope supported uh, William? Yes, he yeah. did actually. Because that's they were the, all against that's something that isn't um, highlighted an awful lot. But yeah, he did. He, he led support to um, to William to the the opposing team, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, because they were just against an overpowering or an all powerful France, regardless yeah. of religion. They're like, yeah, yeah, I know you're the Protestants, but uh, and I'm the head of the Catholic Church, but we'll back you guys because we don't like yeah, these French because guys. we definitely don't want France to be um, <laughs> the central power yeah, in crazy. Europe. Yeah, basically, yeah, that, that is essentially it. It's stopping stopping France. Mm. So, yeah. Okay, so the Battle of Ockram, it kicks off. Two armies meet. Saint-Roux is on the defensive, which I suppose, it, 
Ockram is the best defensive battlefield, I suppose. Well, not the best, but it's a very good defensive position given that you got the bog across and pretty much the whole centre of the battlefield. you got Tristan Stream to the south or to the right, and you got the castle with the other bridge to the left. This battle, like, what first thing that really surprised me was that it starts so late in the day. It was like five o'clock in the mm. afternoon. Yeah, it's very, very late before it um, sort of kicks off. Um, the sort of the morning of the battle, it's it's foggy. There's heavy fog. Um, we know that the weather for the last few days has been wet, so the ground is soaking. Um, it's kind of around two p.m., two o'clock in the afternoon, when the Williamites actually reach the battlefield, and they drew up into their battle lines. So there's one description that kind of describes the line, and it says it's as if they're going to stretch across the horizon that's the amount of men that are drawing up. Right, yeah. So the fog kind of lifts and then the artillery starts firing. So I suppose, you know, it's it's damp, it's foggy, um, it's loud, You've all the smoke from the cannons going off. Um, and it's kind of light skirmishing that sort of starts off down at um, the Tristan Ford. So it's the Danish troops that are sent in first and they're clashing with the Jacobites. So the casualties are really low but it's kind of steady action that goes on through the day. Um, as you said there, it's late. It's around four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, the battle still hasn't actually began properly. And Ginkle um, consulted with his generals around that time. So Mackay, uh, the Scottish general, he's convinced that the battle should go ahead today. You know, today is the day. And he thinks that the key to the whole field is the causeway. He's determined that that's the way to kind of break the Jacobite defence. So it's really around kind of five o'clock in the day before the battle begins properly. And the Huguenot troops are sent through the bog into an area that will become known as the Bloody Hollow. So the fight in there is just absolutely brutal. You know, the Jacobites have every advantage that the ground can give them. Yeah. And the Huguenots are really kind of fish in a barrel because the troops are just arranged above them on the hill and all they have to do is shoot down. So um, after they're sent in, there are... English regiments uh, that are sent in across the bog, Earl, Herbert, Crichton and Brewer. So they go into the bog at the kind of northern end of um, Ockram Hill. So when they got across the bog eventually they would have seen like a series of field boundaries and hedges and you can kind of still see that landscape today it's all, it hasn't changed that much so that journey through the bog would have been just hellish, you know, they're in these heavy woolen coats, they're carrying a stone of kind of just musket alone, never mind the rest of their kit. Yeah. And they're up to their, their waist in the kind of mud and water. So they're under very heavy fire. And as they get across, they're seeing these hedgerows and the hedgerows are all lined with musketeers. So, you know, they're heading through the hedges. These are all spiked with muskets. And as they move through, the Jacobites actually move back. Right. So they're okay. kind of drawing them in. Yeah. So, as I said, the fighting here is, is brutal um, and it gets the name Bloody Hollow because of the amount of blood that was supposedly shed on the ground. Um, some of the Jacobites at this point are actually gaining ground and they're even advancing. There's one particular regiment, um, Gordon O'Neill's, they advance far and away into the, the Willamite line and they actually gain an artillery piece. Oh, nice. So, yeah, exactly. So, you know, Samru is up on the hill and he's, he's watching all this and as far as he's concerned at this point, day's won and he even shouts out you know the day is ours and it really did seem to be the case so 
the entire Wulimite army at this point is engaged on kind of every front and it's floundering. The Jacobite centre on the right are holding well, they're advancing, and troops from the village were brought into the centre to reinforce it. Mm-hmm. So the Wulimite generals are obviously watching this from their vantage point as well. And Mackay in particular, he has had a bee in this bonnet, a bee in his bonnet, sorry, um, over the causeway since the kind of initial skirmishing began. So as I mentioned before with the causeway, it's narrow. So there's only two horse at a time that can cross it. And Mackay is kind of losing patience with his men because they're understandably pretty reluctant to cross. They've got the castle at the bottom of it, um, which is kind of being held by Burke's regiment. Mm -hmm. So they're putting up fire. So even if you can go down this causeway, you're going to get picked off by the boys at the end from the castle. Yeah. So Mackay apparently rides down it, this causeway, to show that it can be done. Um, He rides back, but he's thrown from his horse. And it's Ruvigny, another uh, French officer, and he crosses under fire. And he's followed by, I think, another four or five regiments that go down the causeway. So all of this action at that end of it, it hasn't gone unnoticed. And the fire from the castle ruins slows down. So this is kind of one of the key points in the battle because mm. this is where it all starts going a wee bit wrong for the Jacobites. Yeah, so there's like 200 there's, musketeers up in that castle. So you were saying? Say that again? You were saying there's there's something like 200 musketeers up there. Yeah, exactly. Just covering the, that little two-horse two point. Yeah, this should be the kind of strongest point of the field. You know, this should yeah. be impossible. Mm. Um, and it's it's that point that it all, it all goes wrong. So the story goes that they had been supplied with, I think, French muskets, which had too small a muzzle for the English ball that they'd been supplied with. Or the other way around, it's either... No, English you're right, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it means basically they're, that they're unable to reload. Yeah. You know, we have these stories passed down that they were firing, you know, their buttons and different bits and pieces to kind of keep up the fire. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, God. I can talk about that a bit later, actually, because there's kind of a few theories as to what happened there. Either way... Um, something held them back at the castle and it kind of floundered there. So uh, Samru would have been up on the hill observing all this. Um, the cavalry um, stationed at the castle or near the castle as well, Sheldon and Luttrell, they're kind of ineffectively holding it all off. So Samru makes a move that kind of seals Ireland's fate, if you like, for the next few centuries and he moves down the hill right. to his left. And as he moves... Um, this artillery piece fires a shot and it takes his head clean off. So the story that goes with that shot is interesting. There are kind of two stories to it. Um, He's now certainly the ugliest man with a cannonball to the face. Yes, now we don't know what he looks like because he's got no head. Mm. Um, (laughs) But the two stories that go with the shot are interesting because the first is that there was a, a shepherd that had been um, minding his sheep on the fields near Ockram. And when the Jacobite army came through, um, they took his sheep and ate them. And he obviously wanted compensation for this. And he was laughed at. So when the Williamite army rocked off, he supposedly went to them um, and said, you know, I have seen uh, the Marquis de saint Ruth. I'll point him out to you on the hill. So he does. And that they're able to take aim and take him out. Right. So that's one of the stories. Um, the other one is that as the cannon was being prepared to be fired to take the shot, it was sinking in the mud. And one of the gunners 
whipped off his boot and propped up the wheel of the cannon with his heel, right, to kind of get it level. Um, and so the cannon was able to take the shot and take his head. Now, that gunner then went on to become uh, the Dean of Rathbone, was the title that he was given. And apparently a toast among the Williamites was to the heel of the Dean of Rathbone. And we know that Jacobites had their own little toast to the, the gentleman in the little black waistcoat, which is the the mole that William supposedly um, tripped over when he was out riding and what would eventually kill him. But those are the two stories that kind of go with with this shot, because obviously something in like something like that in history mm. it's have a bit of a legend around it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Either way, the outcome is the same. Yeah, um, yeah, true. I, I don't know yeah. if I believe either of them. If you've any spent no, any time no, around a cannon, they're not that accurate. It, it's a it's a fluke shot. Yeah, I for think. sure. And as for a boot being used to prop up the wheel, yeah. like especially yeah, if it's already sinking. Oh, this yeah. boot is going to save the day. Yeah, no, I don't think so. So, um, well, it's nice to have. I like those. I like those little legends and stories. Oh, yeah, of course. And that's the thing that I like about Ockram is that there's plenty of that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, so anyway, as I said, the, the outcome is the same. Either way, he, he is now headless. Um, <laughs> and his body was supposedly covered with a cloak afterwards. Yes. Um, and there's another bit of folklore, actually, that says that his body was brought off to be buried in Loch Ray. And his goods and his horse were supposedly sent back to France, but they were intercepted en route. Now, how true that is, I don't know. It's just something I came to come across when I was reading. Okay. But um, either way, the spot where he fell is marked by a bush, which you can actually still go and see today. Mm. And it's rather imaginatively called uh, Samaritan's Bush, that's so very easy to find out on the battlefield. So after he's killed, the chain of events gets a bit confusing. But what happens next happens very, very quickly. So... By around kind of eight o'clock, we know that four English battalions had succeeded in crossing the causeway. So in Samaru's absence, the chain of command has been broken and the troops are now really, really starting to kind of struggle to, to rally. So the next thing that goes wrong is when Luttrell and Sheldon abandon the fields. So Right. Okay. Why they, do they do that? Because their cavalry taken on, you just said, four... Uh, infantry regiments or battalions. You know, yeah, this should be a kind of mm-hmm. piece of cake for them. Yeah, especially because they're supported by Jacobite infantry as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Hayes McCoy wrote in his piece on Irish battles that he thought it was a case of the kind of upper class cavalry deserting, you know, the kind of lower class infantry. Right. And um, I haven't really read anything to kind of massively contradict that. I think it's as good a reason as any. Um, Sheldon, Parker and Luttrell they were all on that really strong flank they had literally one job (laughs) you know and that was to pick off the Williamites as they came across the causeway and they put up a bit of a fight but it was such a half-hearted one it was ineffective Um, so maybe they saw it all falling apart and just thought you know, no, we've we've done enough let's get out of here Um, you could argue that kind of most of the Irish cavalry officers were sort of pushed to the edge, literally. Um, for most of them, home was behind them now. It was back in the east. And I suppose with the arrival of the new French officers that had come, that their positions had been kind of usurped a little bit. Right. Um, we know that there was a little bit of disgruntlement in the camp. 
Um, and who could blame them? Do you know, this was kind of their home and everything that they were fighting for. So whether it was a lack of morale or something a bit more sinister like treachery, maybe, right. it's it's kind of, it's up for debate. It's it's anyone's guess, really, why they left. But, you know, either way, the outcome was kind of, kind of the same. Hmm. Um, because what followed after that was just an out-and-out slaughter. Um, there's one account that describes how 2,000 of the Irish who threw down their arms and arts quarter were killed in cold blood. Um, and it's only really Sarsfield and his cavalry's attempt to act as a rear guard that kind of prevent the complete annihilation of the, the Jacobite army. So, you know, it would have been getting dark, it would have been around 9pm, and the Jacobite survivors would have started their march to Limerick. Um, we know that the Williamite army camped on the battlefield that night, and it was late in the evening and their baggage couldn't be brought up from Ballinasloe. Um, there's another writer, George Story, who was supposedly an eyewitness at all this. And writing after the battle, he reckoned that 7,000 Jacobites were killed right. and that the bodies of the slain <clears throat> apparently looked like a great flock of sheep on the side of the hill. Now, whether there were 7,000, again, the numbers on this is so controversial because every source you read has a different number for it. Um, I don't think he's too far off with that number. Um, I would say maybe maybe 9,000 in total. Right. Wow. Killed. It was it was a big battle. I know the numbers have kind of come down over the years. People are revising it the whole time. Um, but yeah, I think it downplays it. It was a huge, huge battle and a huge loss of life. Uh, that's crazy. Yeah, I suppose that's why it's Ireland's bloodiest battle. Yeah, um, absolutely. So while that's going on up by the castle on the kind of northern or left flank of the Jacobite mm-hmm. position. Sarsfield is there with the rest of the cavalry and more. He's got the larger amount of cavalry on the right flank at the southern um, end near Tristan Stream, right? That's the thing. There's a bit of a question mark with Sarsfield's role because um, there's a lot of sources that just disagree on where he even was during the course of this. Um, Some have him, as you've said there, down on the right, down by the stream. Um, Some have him in like reserve at the, the back of the hill if you like okay and i've even read one that has him down at the castle hmm. so he's either everywhere or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. nobody knows where he is um we do know that sam roof is known to have disliked him more so his kind of popularity with the men so right. i think it's kind of likely that he was kind of pushed sort of down to the the edge of the field down towards tristan And the only real mention we get of him is towards the end of the battle, and that's when he organised the retreat. Mm. And without him doing that, it's likely that far more of the Jacobite army would have perished. Um, We know for definite that he he would have headed towards Portumna after the battle. That's where his wife's family were from. And then he would have crossed the Shannon onto Limerick. So he obviously plays a prominent role in negotiating the treaty at Limerick, and then he departs with the wild geese. Um, but as for Ockram, he's he's very, very quiet. We don't really know where he was. Which is strange because, I mean, the battlefield itself, it's not massive in, in terms of like distance between the north and south end. It's it's what? Come. It's maybe, I'd say it's maybe a mile um, kind of along the length of the hill and maybe maybe even as much as two across maybe okay don't necessarily quote me on that <laughs> right right but what i'm wondering is like if tristan stream if that sector is fairly secure 
and he has the surplus cavalry. I, from reading Hayes McCoy's as well, mm. it's puzzled me why they didn't, you know, whip across and come up and support the North. Or I suppose by the time with communications as bad as they were back then, by the time they knew what was going on in the northern end, you know, the battle was already done. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I know myself from from walking it and and being around on it. Um, unless you are up on the height, you you cannot get a clear view of the field. If you're down at the stream, um, forget it. You can kind of see out across into the bog. But as for what's going on up towards the the village and the castle, you just you haven't got the view. Um, so yeah, it's possible that he was stuck down there and didn't know what was going on. I can believe that, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I do believe that there was an element of him being kind of pushed out on the edge of the field, kind of away from the, the excitement, if you like. Yeah, I suppose that, that falls into the um, Sam Roo's arrogance and idea that yeah, he's the best. Yeah, exactly. So anybody you know, that's you're getting to... popular with the guys, so, you know, off mm-hmm. you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you <laughs> stay down we there. We don't want to see you. And um, that's, I mean, that is what happened because... We haven't really got any proper mention of him throughout the battle, so it worked. <laughs> so why is it that Samru moves down towards the northern end? That um, was another thing, because I, like, I knew, I, I figured that, okay, he thinks, and prematurely he says the day is Irish, but yeah. he moves down towards the northern end, towards the castle, but I never figured out why. Is it because he thinks, all right, we're done here, but why would he move towards the action rather than away from the action? Um, I think perhaps he could see the fire flagging at the castle. Okay. And, mo- and moved up. Right. Um, Figure out what's going thing. on. The, ch- the chain of events is very slightly confused in this. Like, you don't know if it's because, like, Luttrell and Sheldon leave, and that's why he moves down. Right. Or it's because he sees the fire flagging, and they leave because of that, and then he moves down. So there is that kind of slight confusion there. Um, but yeah, either way, it's it's that move that really kind of is the, the kicker in this battle. It's whatever goes wrong at the castle and at the end of the causeway, that causes the whole thing to fall apart, that whole flank collapses. Yeah, and then once an army breaks, that's where the most of the killing takes place um, yeah. in the, the, the route afterwards. So... My brother likes these type of battles because everything depends on the commander. And I've never liked them precisely because it relies on the one guy who's large and in charge, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And like that, with Senru, when he's killed, you know, he, he, the whole thing goes to hell in a handbasket. And it, it doesn't seem, from what I've read, that he hasn't really divulged the battle plan to his senior officers. In fact, he sent a lot of them away to um, to Galway and to Limerick as well before the battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I I personally think he gets a lot of flack for this because um, I think, you know, fundamentally, Ockrama is a defensive battle. You know, every move that he makes, it's counter to what the Williamites are making. You know, it completely depends on what their action is. That, you know decides what he's going to do. So I don't think you can necessarily come up with a plan to this, if you like. If he was to kind of leave a plan behind, he's just leaving a chain of kind of 
hypothetical um, situations. You know, lads, if they go here, make sure you do this. Yeah, um, yeah. It's not really going to work. Um, as well as this, his second in command was a chap called Detesse. And he kind of comes across as either being brave or a, a bit of an idiot because he gets sucked in with all the fighting in the middle. So as a second command, he's actually not that great because he's he's gone straight in. He's in the middle of the fight. Yeah. And he's he's not there when it when it all falls apart. So admittedly, Samru maybe could have done a little bit more in being a bit more uh, approachable, delegating more tasks perhaps. But I think to kind of say that it all depends on him and it all went wrong because he didn't divulge his plan is isn't necessarily accurate. Fair enough. So I'm just wondering like I don't like to be like, all right, well then who's to blame, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but who is to blame, God damn it. Who is to blame? Who do I well. say this is the worst ever? Who ruined <laughs> Ireland for centuries because of this? Well, I like to kind of pin it on uh, two people. Um, as I said to you before, the, the guys at the castle, whatever went wrong with Burke's regiment, um, that is kind of one of the things that underpins this. Yeah, um, true. I mean, who's playing English? ammo or whether the the guns clogged that could be possible mm-hmm. um michael has the theory that they just ran out of ammunition um if you think that each soldier is carrying uh, 12 rounds of ammunition they can get off maybe two or three shots in a minute wow. so at their absolute quickest each soldier has got enough ammo to last what four minutes yeah at its slowest he's got six minutes so we know the guys at the castle were firing heavily all day, and that's why the causeway was so hard for the Willemites to cross. Right. So it's possible that the supply line was interrupted, mm-hmm. and they just ran out. Um, that's kind of one one of the theories. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, that to me is kind of something that makes sense rather than them being supplied with the the wrong the wrong shot. Yeah, I so, mean because I mean I can I can understand. If, you know, it was James' army, so there might be stores of English ball around. But then when the French show up and they bring rifle, um, you know, stores and uh, weapons as well. Okay, that makes sense as well. I can see how that possibly could have happened. But Mm. also just the sheer fact that they just, they're in the, the, they're in the firing line right there. It's the hottest part of the battlefield. And they're just blasting the way through uh, their ammunition until the stores run dry. That makes sense. That happens. Mm. Um, but yeah, they can't get, they can't take all the blame because there is, of course, Luttrell, and the blame often lands with him for leaving the field. Um, it tends to get pinned on him because he was found to be in correspondence with the Williamites later on in the war. Um, when he was court-martialed at Limerick, Ginkle supposedly said that he would start executing Jacobite prisoners if anything happened to Luttrell. So that kind of very heavily <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. implies, yeah, that he, he was being paid up. Um, but the fact is that Sheldon Parker, the other cavalry officers positioned in that part of the field, they legged it too. So maybe it was just a case of poor morale. Um, they could have been annoyed maybe that Samaru had told them to stay where they were. Um, maybe they were sulking and they left. Um, but either way, them leaving the field was a huge part of why the battle was lost. Mm. Um, because as we said previously, once that side was exposed and that collapsed, you know, it was game over. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, I suppose those two things, the guys at the castle and um, the cavalry officers leaving the field, we'll, um, we'll pin the blame on them. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Let's blame those guys. I mean, the soldiers, yeah. are, the soldiers are doing their job. They're not in charge of supply lines. <laughs> <laughs> Sheldon and uh, Parker and Luttrell, they didn't have to leave. Although yeah. maybe they ran out of ammunition as well. But then again, their cavalry, they're used to, they're used to, to fighting on horseback with sabres and swords rather yeah, than... Yeah, exactly. Know. You would have expected them to have put up a yeah, bit yeah, yeah. more fight than they, than they did. So. Yeah, true. Yeah. And I suppose then, like, yeah, I mean, so many times, especially in these... Um, type of battles that once the flank is exposed the army just gets rolled up mm-hmm. and that, that is what happened here yeah yeah very much so mm. so i mean okay i suppose <laughs> the question then i want to ask is if this is you know as we mentioned it's ireland's bloodiest battle it's mm-hmm. far more important and it you know like you said it messes up ireland for another couple of centuries because oh, yeah. of it so I mean why do you think then that the Battle of Ockram isn't as well known certainly not as well known as you know the, the previous battle of the Boyne um, I think location comes into this um, there's kind of a good comparison with the passage tombs of Newgrange and Carrickeel so Newgrange obviously is in the east near Dublin Carrickeel is way off up in Sligo um, one of them is the oldest passage tomb in Ireland, stunning setting, unspoiled. You can walk up and into it. There's never anybody else around. And the other one is one of Ireland's most mob tourist attractions. And it's purely because of the location. Yeah. Newgrange is more accessible. Carrickeel isn't. Yeah. Um, and it's the exact same with Ockham. Because it's kind of so far west, I do think that that comes into it. Um, it's not as accessible for, for most people. Right. Um, aside from that, I suppose the Boyne is seen as being a little bit more glamorous. It's kind of easier to sell. You know, you have the two kings on the field. You didn't have that at Ockram. Yeah. Um, they're no, divided by a river. The battle's full of uh, near misses. You know, it's kind of like a fairy tale. And it's a really decisive victory because James legs it afterwards. Um, Ockram is a close victory. And that's kind of a hard one to sell, I suppose. Right. Um, as well as that, the date is an issue too. Mm. Um, Ockram was fought on the 12th of July in 1691, and the Boyne was fought on the 1st of July. Yes. When the Julian calendar changed to the Gregorian one, the one that we're using now, the date of the Boyne shifted to the 12th. So that's why we have all those um, bonfires and, and celebrations on the 12th. It's because of that. Yeah. Um, and I suppose as well, um, now this might be a bit controversial, but that's potentially another reason why the Boyne outshines Ockram and it's its proximity to the north. So this sort of period of history has been not exactly hijacked, but the, the Orange Order have certainly made this period of history their own. You know, it's kind of the keystone of their organisation. Yeah, definitely. And they're kind of controlling the narrative a wee bit. So I'd love to see more historians from, you know, the Republic of Ireland concentrating on this era because I think that that's when Ockram will kind of be brought into focus a wee bit more clearly rather than just being a name where people associate with the marches and all this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I do think that has a part to play in it as well. Yes. Uh, yeah, I suppose, I mean, we're not in control of the... Battle of the Boyne celebrations. Um, 
so we don't get this to say why it's as big as yeah and I suppose then yeah, yeah with, exactly with with two kings there yeah that makes sense that it's a lot more glamorous and yeah it's closer to Dublin and it's funny actually like Carrickeel it's you know I live just outside of Sligo and yeah you can just see it you know and there's no one ever there and it's just left in disrepair yeah it's it's extraordinary like you can oh, just sorry, as I said, you can literally um, walk yeah, into it <laughs> yeah 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 you definitely can um mm. and yeah and then there's Creevy Keel as well and that's yeah that's even worse repair um, yeah it's yeah when you compare it to you know Newgrange which is you know making an absolute fortune <laughs> yeah yeah you know um so yeah I do think that that is the difference I mean if you compare the footfall with the Boyne and Ockram there isn't a comparison true you know the visitor centers are in no way alike in terms of funding or anything like that either so you know I do think it's something that needs to have the spotlight shone a bit more clearly on it and you know the fact that it is Ireland's decisive battle um, certainly the decisive battle of this war anyway so, yeah, yeah yeah for sure yeah I mean well then let's 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 talk about um, the aftermath of this decisive battle and what mm. happens then with the end of this war um, so immediately afterwards obviously there's the route so the Jacobites are kind of using the land to try and escape um, the Williamites um, as I said there the Williamites slept on the battlefield that night now, there's stories of them kind of using bodies as seats and all this kind of crack. Right. Um, I just don't know how likely that is. I can't see myself, if I've just fought a battle, going, you know, oh, you know what, I'm going to curl up on this dead body for the night. I just I can't see that happening. Um, so, yeah, they slept on the battlefield that night. Um, the next day, they actually took the time to hold a funeral for some of the officers, and okay. then they moved on. So one of them, uh, Eppinger, he was sent to Port Tumner and he actually found a um, a store of ammunition that had been spiked um, by the Jacobites. So Ginkle then headed to Galway. That sort of promptly surrendered without much of a fight. Mm. Um, but the Jacobite garrisons were allowed to head with all their arms and all their ammunition to Limerick. And Sligo did the same. Um, there's a fort in Sligo, Green Fort, and that would have been, I think it's officially the last place uh, to surrender in this war. Um, Sligo doesn't usually get much of a mention in this, but it did. Yeah, um, I think it was a chap called Tygo Regan, and he was in his 70s. And he was holding that for, I think, maybe the guts of a year. He held it against all these different um, Williamite assaults. And then in the end, when all this came about that, you know, it was over, off he had to march then to Limerick. So he was supposed to be quite a formidable formidable guy. So. Mm, but yeah, so uh, in Limerick was um, laid siege to, um, and I think at this point everyone knows that the outcome is kind of inevitable. So the the Jacobite and Williamite troops negotiate a treaty, and we know that Sarsfield is kind of um, the key player in all of that. Mm-hmm. And that treaty actually had favourable terms for the Jacobites, and it yeah. kind of did um, enshrine kind of Catholic rights and all that kind of stuff. And we know that ships were supplied so that the men could leave for France if they wanted to. Um, the rest had to, if they wanted to stay, they had to swear loyalty to the British crown and they could keep their lands. Um, Long term, the aftermath, uh, it's not so favourable for the, the Jacobites, uh, particularly for Catholics. Yeah, the famous you know, the, the famous line the, being the ink wasn't even dry on the paper. Uh, exactly, the <laughs> yeah. That's it, yeah. So the penal laws uh, come into action shortly afterwards. 
and that kind of slowly inhibits all their freedoms and liberties. Um, and they only get repealed much, much later. Mm. And it was actually, I mentioned Ruvini, who had charged the causeway. I think he was chief justice in Ireland at the time when they were enacted. So, you know, the guys at Ockram, you know, were still key players even in the aftermath. You know, it all kind of comes back to, to Ockram. So, and obviously, I mean, the impact of this, the aftermath, is still being felt because the troubles in the north essentially boil down to this battle in, in East Galway. Um, you know, the effects of it are reaching up until the present day, Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's still, we're still feeling the, the, the aftermath of this. So yeah. it's huge. Yeah, definitely. Like, um, yeah, it's certainly, I mean, yeah, just look at the the Irish diaspora from that, you know, as well. Just to take one point, like there's so much like, you know, the, the what was it, 14,000 men that leave with Sarsfield, the mm-hmm. flight of the wild geese, you know. Yeah, the wild geese, yeah. That's, yeah, just the sheer numbers of that. And, but then like the effect that it has in Ireland, I mean, from this then you have the, you know, um, all the tumultuous history that we have then afterwards, like 1798 and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Catholic emancipation then coming later on. Yeah, I suppose, you know, your kind of Catholic aristocracy here is is shattered. Yeah. Because there were, what, maybe four or five hundred prisoners taken at Ockram. So there were more executed than captured. So, you know, it was a huge loss with the kind of officers and that as well, because it meant that the Jacobite army was left with no guidance, very little order. Right. You know, they're now hugely lacking in the experience. So that had an impact on the course of their decisions. Yeah. So, you know. Okay. I'm going to ask, This is we're going to go into counterfactual history now, and I know we're not meant to because <laughs> anything could happen, but Ed. we wouldn't be human if we didn't ask what if. What if. So <laughs> what if, what if the Battle of Ockram goes the other way and Samru and uh, the Jacobites beat Hinkle, uh, Ginkle and the William White army there and smash him. Mm-hmm. This is my favourite game to play. What if? So, All historians <laughs> say the exact same thing. I think, um, I think the outcome would probably have been the same unless there was more su- French support that came in. Okay. I think as it stood, um, there wasn't really a chance of kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? A definitive kind of victory for the Jacobites, unless they had help. I think if they had won Ockram, okay, they might have retreated to Galway or Limerick, um, or they might, sorry, they might have moved forward. They might have, I suppose they could have holed up in Galway and Limerick, or they could have moved the other way. They could have gone as far as maybe Mullingar. Mm-hmm. Um but even then, the army still isn't in a great state at this point. Um, so, no, I don't think the outcome would have been massively, massively different. I think it maybe would have made the war drag on for maybe another year or two, unless the French could have come. Yeah, I was thinking that it would be just a major delaying factor. That yes. either, like you said, they're going to have to draw back to Limerick. And, you know, I know that... William wanted this to be wrapped up as quick as possible so he mm-hmm. could get all his arms and ammunition and all his men and folks back on the continent. You know, whereas if we delayed this into 1692, that was going to have a, an adverse reaction on him. 
Or I was thinking like, even if we did, uh, even if the Jack Whites did win at Ockram, they were still going to have to push forward. Like, are they going to retake Athlone? You know, mm. and then are they going to push again, take Dublin? In the meantime, you know, if that looks like it's on the card, William will probably reinforce, you know, so. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, like even logistically, to you know supply armies of that size mm. um there's a list somewhere that has you know all the the casts of brandy and all these different things that they were supplied with and it's absolutely huge like to have this drag on for another year the expense is going to be absolutely massive and i don't know whether it it could have been done um so so yeah much as i'd love to say oh yeah this would have been you know, James would have been back on the throne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ireland comes <laughs> um, number the one in the world. The don't happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Save the world. But yeah, no, probably mm. doesn't happen. Well, Abby, tell us where everybody can uh, find you online or your work. Oh, so um, if you check up 1691 Ockram on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, you can find us there. Um, we try and post interesting things. We think they're interesting. Um, yeah, find us online. And um, the Twitter account is very, very active. Facebook is too. Um, Facebook is actually the original sort of social media account that Michael had set up. So um, yeah, definitely follow us on that. Um, I don't know with this um, COVID nineteen thing. I have no idea whether the centre will actually be open. Mm. Um, or not. Um, I don't know whether our Heritage Week event will be able to to go ahead. Um, but yeah, next year we're hoping to be back with a bang. So definitely, if you can next year, visit the Visitor Centre because it's well worth it. So yeah, that's where you can find us. Yeah, brilliant. And actually, like I have to say, the minute-by-minute updates of the Battle of Ockram on Twitter Every year I look forward to it. Like, it's brilliant. Oh, thank you. That was one of my better ideas. <laughs> yeah, no, like, it's a great idea. It's really, really great idea. Like, it's anybody who's interested in it, go and check that out. It's absolutely fantastic. Oh, thank you. Like, I love this battle because it is wide open. Mm. You know, the more you kind of read on this, the more you realise everyone has a different take on it. Some of the accounts don't add up. And you can walk away from it. Like, you could read up about it and come away from it with a completely different um take on it to what i have right um, and that's why i like it um that and the kind of folklore side of things okay um i spent a lot of time on the ducas website looking mm. up the, the stories that kind of belong to this that's a great website oh it's fantastic yeah, there are it. some absolutely crazy things on it it's like every field around Ockram has a pot of gold in it that the, the army is supposed to have left behind right yeah um there's tons of stuff and that's what i kind of um enjoy as well and um, it's that side of things excellent okie doke Abby McGowan thank you so thank much thank you for having me cheers <laughs> so there you have it folks Ireland's bloodiest battle the Battle of Ockram major big thank you to Abby for coming on and having the chat with me I think it comes across quite well that we we're both really enthusiastic and that emanates in our conversation that we both really enjoy history and talking about it. Or maybe it's because we haven't had enough conversations about history because of lockdown. But either way, thank you so much to Abby for coming on and talking to me. It was a really great crack. And for being so knowledgeable about the Battle of Vakram. If you like that conversation, cannot stress enough, 
you should really follow them at 1691 Ockram on Twitter and follow their Facebook and Instagram pages. Their series of live tweets from the Battle of Ockram is just incredible. It's really worthwhile. And of course, once lockdown is finally ended, why not go and see them at the Heritage Centre as well? Once again, thank you so much for listening. Thanks to everybody for following me on Instagram and Twitter. I think I'm nearly at 18,000 followers on Twitter, which is just incredible. Thank you so much. You know, if you don't follow me there, you can find me at Ireland Battles on Instagram and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a patron for as little as three euro a month, you can follow me at Patreon forward slash The Irish at War. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, good luck.